0: Welcome to The Quest. My name is Alan Mulhern. First, an announcement. If you find this episode or this series of podcasts instructive, it would be very helpful if you could leave a review or a rating. By that means the podcasts can extend their reach. This is our third episode on technology and consciousness. I will summarize the argument so far and then proceed. Episode 51 essentially presented a philosophy of technology, suggesting a positive feedback system between the evolutionary expansion of the brain and the development in technology. Technology is not neutral. It is not something we simply use or do. It's not independent of us. It's best understood with a system's mythology. In the short run, it alters consciousness in the long run, it interacts with our evolution by guaranteeing the survival of those genes disposed to the emerging technologies. The term autocatalytic was used to indicate how one part of a system can catalyse another part, and this can lead to an accelerating evolutionary development. Therefore, elementary technology, stone tools, not only promoted survival but accelerated evolution in the positive feedback loop next we move to the latest period of economic development capitalism the most technological of all economic systems and described the kondratiev technological waves such as those of steam railways chemicals electricity mass manufacture the automobile computerization we are in the latest wave in which the velocity scale and impact of a fusion of technologies, are unprecedented. Two attitudes towards technology were outlined, the optimistic and the pessimistic. In the next episode, number 52, it was explained that technology is deeply interconnected with human nature across our evolution. The early stone tools of hominids from 2.3 million years ago, followed by the recent emergence of Homo sapiens, three hundred forty thousand years ago were outlined, and then the cognitive revolution of sixty thousand years ago, each stage being particularly marked by advances in the variety and complexity of tool use. Next, the agricultural revolution was outlined, obviously being a great leap in understanding and manipulation of nature, and which promoted the vast changes from the hunter-gatherer to the farmer and then to complex societies that lived off the agricultural surplus. Examples were given of the changing psychology, shaping the beliefs and attitudes in this transition from hunter-gatherer to farmer. I then referred to previous episodes, 42, 43 and 44, entitled Consciousness, Capitalism and Modernity, which detailed the great psychological changes of capitalism. Firstly, in the prerequisites for the emergence of this economic formation, such as the decline in magic, the decline of the Middle Ages, and the influence of the Catholic Church, the rise of Protestantism, and a more rationalistic and individualistic spirit, all researched by Max Weber. And secondly, these episodes had listed 22 points of changing psychology of capitalism. These were the removal from nature, A materialistic view of the world, the increasing rational and economic viewpoint, the abandonment of a religious outlook, more individualism, an economic and legalistic view of societal relationships, rational and bureaucratic systems of control, specialisation but fragmentation of knowledge, money relationships being dominant, greater education, wealth creation and to a limited extent enjoyment, A vast increase in consumerism, property ownership, technological reliance and greater freedom. A change in the nature of the repressive apparatus within the collective psyche. Increasing dominance of the conscious over the unconscious. Increasing dominance of the left hemisphere. Disenchantment and loss of soul. Nature is viewed as an exploitable resource. The movement to a degendered human being and the rise of informational capitalism and of artificial intelligence and the alteration of human nature. In today's episode, I wish to outline the thoughts of two major thinkers, since each have a great deal to say, either directly or indirectly, on our subject of technology and consciousness. Firstly, Marshall McLuhan, a prophet of technology of the 1960s, and secondly, Ian McGilchrist, a psychiatrist. Marshall McLuhan was a Canadian philosopher who revolutionised media theory in the late 1960s and pioneered highly original views on the subject of our concern. New technologies, he argued, exert a gravitational effect on cognition, which in turn deeply affects social organisation. Print technology, developed in the 1400s in Europe, although originating much earlier in the Orient, is the extreme phase of alphabet culture that detribalizes or de-collectivises mankind that is takes mankind to a new level of development of consciousness and social structure just as the alphabet did thousands of years previously print he pointed out raises the visual features of alphabet culture to the highest intensity of definition and carries the individuating power of the phonetic alphabet, much further than manuscript culture could ever do. Print is the technology of individualism. McLuhan warned that if mankind decided to modify this visual technology by an electric technology, individualism would also be modified. Electronic interdependence the age which was emerging in the 1960s, replaced the individualist print and visual culture with a collective identity. He said that our societies will move from individualism and fragmentation to a collective global village. He maintained the world was becoming like a computer, an electronic brain, and that as our senses as it were, have gone outside of us. Big Brother came inside. Extensive inner surveillance became inevitable. He said that a type of total global interdependence would come into existence, which resembled the normal state of tribal cultures, which were oral cultures. Mass panic attacks, like in these early societies, would become common. Well, that has happened. Although the World Wide Web would only be invented decades after McLuhan predicted it, the world now indeed has become a global village and is deeply interconnected, like a tribal society. And it is not all benevolent. Pandemics can spread, wars can break out, pollutants can be deposited in any part of the globe and have consequences for the whole earth. Misinformation, spying, electronic surveillance become common, globally. A cyber attack on a corporation or even a country can bring it to its knees. We live in a very different world due to our technologies, and this has profoundly affected our societies and our consciousness. McLuhan argued that, quote, technology is a tool that profoundly shapes an individual's And a society's self conception and realization. His most famous phrase is, the medium is the message, by which he meant that it is not the contents of the media that are the most important thing, it is rather the media or means of communication itself, which has the determining impact on our consciousness. He wrote, In our long striving to recover for the Western world, a unity of sensibility and of thought and feeling, we have no more been prepared to accept the tribal consequences of such unity than we were ready for the fragmentation of the human psyche by print culture. Let's pause for a moment on this quotation in order to better comprehend it. Firstly, McLuhan posits a striving of culture to create, quote, a unity of sensibility and of thought and feeling, unquote, which we can interpret as an effort in the human condition towards integration by advance of civilization. But secondly, he points out that we are unprepared for the price to be paid for our efforts. So, for example... As much as print culture was an advance for civilization in the 15th century, it fragmented consciousness from its previous embedded traditions in a more oral culture, and produced a more individualised identity. So too, by way of contrast, in electronic culture, there is the emergence of a collectivised identity, the global village, similar to tribal cultures, which will have the potential for enormous negative impacts for which we are totally unprepared. Alphabet, then print, and now computer cultures are deep and radical changes to consciousness. McLuhan comments that, quote, if there can be no universal moral sentence passed on technology, there can only be disaster arising from unawareness of the casualties and effects inherent In our technologies. McLuhan is a deeply perceptive researcher not only into the modern media but the impact of technologies upon our consciousness. Recommended reading The Gutenberg Galaxy The Making of Typographic Man, published in 1962. Our next author is Ian McGilchrist, a psychiatrist whose 2009 publication, The Master and His Emissary has become a modern classic. It is not only recommended reading for our topic, but goes far beyond that, providing deep insights into the human condition. The two hemispheres of the brain, while sharing many functions, have an essential difference. They give attention in fundamentally different ways. The left is detailed orientated. The right hemisphere is context orientated. McGilchrist argues that these different modes of perception or attention, detail versus context, result in very different hemispheric personalities, which not only affect individuals but whole societies and even civilizations that emphasise one hemisphere over the other. The connection between the following sketch of McGilchrist's ideas and our theme of technology and consciousness will be clearer if you bear in mind that technology is chiefly a left hemisphere activity. The movement to the left hemisphere dominance, indicated by the text, is surely correlated with the increasing role of technology. All new experience comes via the right hemisphere of the brain and is only later dealt with by the left once it becomes familiar. The right hemisphere is better at making connections between things. It tends to see the whole, and is embedded in a real-world context. It is better able to appreciate actually existing things in all their uniqueness. McGilchrist reasons that, quote, all artistic and spiritual experience, perhaps everything truly important, can be implicit only, unquote. And by that he means... Rooted in the right hemisphere. The intuitive moral sense is closely bound up with empathy for others and is also a right hemisphere function. Only the right hemisphere has a whole body image. The left hemisphere sees the body as an assemblage of parts and as if it were an object in space alongside other objects rather than a mode of existence. For the right hemisphere, we live the body. Whereas for the left, we live in it. Our consciousness is separated from our body for the left hemisphere. But in the right hemisphere, we're part of it. And if you translate the word body into nature, then the same applies. The left hemisphere sees itself as separated from nature and sees it as a usable resource. Whereas the right hemisphere sees itself as part of nature. The right hemisphere is adapted to dealing with living things, which are flexible, organic, constantly changing, and which it is not made. It alone is able to appreciate the organic wholeness of a flowing structure that changes over time, as in fact all living things are. By contrast, the left hemisphere sees time as a succession of points, sees flow like a succession of static moments. Everything, including living holes, is put together from bits. And if there are no clear bits, the left hemisphere will have to invent them. The right hemisphere is more interested in what has personal relevance for me, while the left hemisphere is impersonal. The right is better able to understand what is going on in other people's heads. And to empathise, compared to the left hemisphere, which in these respects is relatively autistic. Our embodied nature enters into everything we do, not just our actions or even our feelings, but our ability to reason, philosophise or even engage in science. The hemispheres have different ways of understanding the body. Our embodied nature is only sensed by the right hemisphere. The left hemisphere seems to think it can detach from it. The left grasps things as if it were with the right hand, pins them down, makes them useful. It forms concepts to manipulate the world and specialises in language. The left sees the parts and the abstract. It schematizes and generalises things into categories, making things explicit and reduces everything to the same familiar categories. Language enables a certain type of functional manipulation of the world. It is impersonal and relatively autistic. Of particular relevance to our focus in these episodes, McGilchrist comments that, quote, the left hemisphere is better attuned to tools, to the inanimate, mechanical or machine-like, and which it has itself made. Such things are understandable in its own terms, because they were put together by it, piece by piece, and they are ideally suited to this kind of understanding. He continues, The left hemisphere's principal concern is utility. It is interested in what it has made, and in the world as a resource to be used. It is therefore natural that it has a particular affinity for words and concepts, for tools, man-made things, mechanisms and for whatever is not alive. The left hemisphere, moreover, is over-optimistic, unrealistically positive in its self-appraisal and is in denial about its shortcomings. Unreasonably certain that it understands things, of which it has little knowledge, and disinclined to change its mind. The right hemisphere sees more, but is far more inclined to self-doubt, is more uncertain of what it knows, and has no voice, since the motor speech centre lies mainly in the left hemisphere. The right hemisphere pays attention to the other, whatever it is that exists apart from ourselves with which it sees itself in profound relation. It is deeply attracted to and given life by the relationship, the betweenness that exists with this other. By contrast, the left hemisphere pays attention to the virtual world that it has created, which is self-consistent but self-contained, ultimately disconnected from the other, making it powerful but also curiously impotent in the last analysis, only able to operate on and to know itself. Both hemispheres, then, are essential for our ability to lead civilised lives, but they are not equally valid. What the left offers is, then, a valuable but intermediate process, one of unpacking what is there and handing it back to the right hemisphere, where it can once more be integrated into the experiential whole, The relationship between the hemispheres is not symmetrical. Each needs the other, yes, each has an important role to play. But these roles are not equal. One depends more on the other. The left hemisphere is not exactly mistaken, but it is limited. The problem comes with its unawareness of this fact. These kinds of attention of the two hemispheres are mutually incompatible though we need to be able to employ them both simultaneously. The development of the frontal lobes enables us to stand back and separate from the world, to break it down and analyse it. It therefore allows focus and specialisation. But the right hemisphere is connective and sees the whole. Humans need to have both ways of understanding the world, and yet keeping them apart is paramount. The corpus callosum, The band of tissue that connects the hemispheres is more involved in humans with the process of inhibition, that is, with keeping things separate. The left hemisphere, however, has come to a point of dominance because it has various advantages. For example, it has control of the voice and the means of argument. Language, logic, and linearity tend to be left specialisations. In addition, the self-consistent world of pure theory and ideas is left hemisphere and like a hall of mirrors. All attempts to escape are deflected back within it. The main paths that might have led us to something beyond the intuitive wisdom embodied in tradition, the experience of the natural world, arts, the body and religion, McGilchrist says, are all emptied by the Abstracting, rationalizing, ironizing impact of the world of self-consistent representations that is yielded by the left hemisphere, the living presence becomes no longer accessible. Unfortunately, though the hemispheres need to cooperate, they are in competition. The left hemisphere thinks it knows it all but it cannot be aware of what the right hemisphere knows. Each needs the other, but the left hemisphere is more dependent on the right than the right is on the left. Yet the left thinks exactly the opposite and thinks it can go it alone. McGilchrist maintains that the, quote, battle between the hemispheres, which is only a battle from the left hemisphere's point of view, explains the shape of the history of ideas in the West and explains the predicament we find ourselves in today. He believes that the history of civilization is a power struggle between these two ways of experiencing the world, and that we have ended up prisoners of just one, that of the left hemisphere alone. McGilchrist points out some consequences of this, for example, the unprecedented assault on the natural world, an increase in the virtuality of life, both in work undertaken and in the omnipresence in leisure time of television, screens and the internet, which between them have created a largely insubstantial replica of life as processed by the left hemisphere. The story on which the title of this book is based, The Master and His Emissary, is that of a spiritual master who, in order to rule his domain, trained emissaries and then kept distance, allowing them to do things in their own way. The most ambitious emissary took this for weakness and established a tyranny, which, because it lacked the master's wisdom, collapsed in ruins. McGilchrist reinterprets this story, told by Nietzsche, in terms of the relationship between the two cerebral hemispheres, which should ideally balance each other with the right hemisphere being the master. However, they have been in conflict with the left hemisphere trying to suppress the right The subsequent battles between them are recorded in the history of philosophy, science and the arts and the seismic shifts characterising the history of Western culture. The usurpation of power by the left hemisphere and its suppression of the right has created a culture which is ill and dangerously imbalanced. As McGilchrist puts it, quote, an increasingly mechanistic fragmented decontextualized world marked by unwarranted optimism mixed with paranoia and a feeling of emptiness has come about reflecting the unopposed action of a dysfunctional left hemisphere unquote. "modernity in which a mechanistic worldview was accepted was followed by modernism in which the abstractions of science were absorbed into everyday life. And this is now giving way to postmodernism, in which the consequent fragmentation of experience is being absorbed. McGilchrist speculates in his conclusion, which is entitled The Master Betrayed, what society would be like if the left hemisphere succeeded completely. He suggests, and I quote and paraphrase, There would be a loss of the broader picture, and the substitution of a more narrowly focused, restricted but detailed world. The broader picture in any case would be disregarded because it would lack the appearance of clarity and certainty which the left hemisphere craves. The parts, the fragments, would seem more important, more likely to lead to knowledge and understanding than the whole, which are now seen as merely the sum of its parts. Narrowly focused attention would lead to an increasing specialisation and a technicalizing of knowledge. Knowledge, which comes through experience, is rejected in favour of data gathering and analytics. Information is now regarded as real, while wisdom is nebulous and ungraspable. The left hemisphere endlessly refines experiments with enormous detail, at which it is exceedingly proficient, but is blind to context in the bigger picture. Skills are reduced to algorithms, which can be regulated by administrators. There would be an increase in both abstraction and reification, that is, treating things as real, whereby the human body itself, and we ourselves, as well as the material world and the works of art we made to understand it, would become simultaneously more conceptual and seen as mere things. The world becomes virtualized. And our experience is through meta-representations of one kind or another. Fewer people find themselves doing work involving contact with anything in the real, lived world. Rather, with plans, strategies, paperwork, management and bureaucratic problems. In fact, more and more work would come to be overtaken by the meta-process of documenting or justifying what one was doing, or supposed to be doing at the expense of a real job in the living world. Technology would flourish as an expression of the left hemisphere's desire to manipulate and control the world for its own pleasure. But it would be accompanied by a vast expansion of bureaucracy, systems of abstraction and control. There would be an absence of feelings, such as empathy, shame, guilt or responsibility. However, anger which is actually based in the left hemisphere, would remain. McGilchrist predicts that the failures engendered by this social order of left brain dominance would not be acknowledged until they had reached disastrous proportions and then responsibility for creating these disasters would be denied. Clearly, we are advancing rapidly towards this complete suppression of the right hemisphere if we have not already arrived.